Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cape Talk. The world of science with Dr. Chris Smith, the naked scientist. Good morning, Chris. How are you this morning? Uh, morning, Rafaela. Welcome back as well. Oh, I appreciate that. I've definitely missed you. Well, likewise. Um, I, I feel like I need to kick off with the questions. Like, how do you tell if an Achilles is going to snap? <laughs> mm, a, a pertinent <laughs> question and a painful one, I, I'm sure. But uh, the answer is we don't. And it's one of those things that it doesn't go until it goes. And when it goes, it goes painfully, as you know. And then what's the treatment? Well, unfortunately, for a tendon, which is about the size of you know your thumb, it's very thick and tough. To fix that takes a long time. So then you just have to do nothing and sit down and not put any strain and load on it. And um, you, you can obviously pin these things together. They can stitch them together to make sure they fix. But tendons heal really slowly. And the reason they heal very slowly is because to give them their strength, they are relatively lacking in blood vessels. And as a result of the poor blood flow, it takes longer to deliver the raw materials and the various factors that are needed to fix them. It's a bit like having one tiny road supplying an enormous factory complex that you've got to build and you end up with a very slow rate of, of lorries coming along the road to deliver the raw materials. So as a result, the healing time tends to be long. Hopefully it's not going to happen to you again. I kind of had a feeling you would have an answer, but I didn't realise you'd have such a thorough one. But I always hear um, that these uh, the, the propensity, I keep on hearing from doctors, from physios, the propensity to snap it again is actually quite high. Well, the thing to bear in mind is that the way that humans are assembled is that there will be flaws in all of us. I remember when I was first at medical school, they gave us this handout at the beginning of a lecture in our sociology course, and it said a healthy person is one who has been inadequately screened. And it's so true. There are there are skeletons lurking in the health closet for every single person listening to this programme, us two included. And because we have these fundamental flaws built into us and they're different in every single person, if you have something happen to you, that automatically changes the chances of anything else happening or something else happening because it, it immediately tells us that this is one particular problem in the way that your body is made. And everyone's an individual. And so what we're doing, and increasingly, this is, this is really relevant in the, in the modern medical era because I was having a conversation this week with somebody who's right at the heart of this whole concept of big data in medicine. Mm-hmm. And for the first time in human history, we're beginning to assemble, as this person put it to me, over a life course, probably about 300 data points for every person who's having their health monitored over their lifetime. So in other words, from the minute you're born and the first interventions you have through your childhood illnesses, vaccinations, health checks as you grow up, through into adulthood and then elderly uh, life course, there is this opportunity now to trace a person from beginning to end and to build this database about all of the things that have happened to them, all of the things they've eaten, all of the things they have or haven't done all of the things that have gone wrong. And this has enormously powerful predictive uh, ability in the same way that Facebook, Twitter and 
all kinds of different online advertisers can decide what adverts to put in front of you because they know more about you than your own wife, husband, brother, sister does, then we will be able to do that with health. It's going to take a while to build this sort of data, but we're getting there. And then you will be able to say, this person has a higher risk of this, 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 this and this happening in their lifetime because of what we already know about them. Now, there will be things coming out of the blue, of course, but it will mean that we can make predictions about Achilles tendons and other disorders much more accurately and we can help people to take aversive action soon because that's the whole thing about this it's preventative mm-hmm. medicine this is going to be really important right. for uh, for africa for example right dawn asks why are ginger genes recessive is it true that red hair will be gone in a century or two well the reason is that uh, and, and ginger genes are themselves i mean let's define what recessive and dominant means recessive just means that the effect of the gene is only mm-hmm. visibly manifest when you have two copies of that gene present in your body as opposed to just one. So let me explain what I mean by that. You have two of each of your chromosomes, two number ones, two number twos and so on. Now if I have a gene on chromosome number one and it produces a very visible manifestation and I have a gene on chromosome two that does the same job but it produces a very invisible manifestation. They both both control the same part of the body. I'm going to mainly see the effect of of the the first gene, not the second. Really good example of this, let's take skin colour for an example. If you have a gene that gives you white skin and you have a gene that also adds extra melanin to make the skin darker. If you've got that gene next to, say, a white gene next to a black gene, you're going to have a baby that looks more black than white. And the reason is that if you take a white canvas and you add paint to it, it doesn't matter what colour the paint is, you're going to see the effect of that paint. But if I start with a gene, therefore, that is dominant, a dark gene, a dark skin pigment gene, is going to have a more dominant effect than a white skin pigment gene. It's, it's, that's where it goes from. So the gene could be diluted out as in ginger people will carry those genes those genes will be in the population but they'll be alongside genes that paint over the ginger manifestation so you don't necessarily see that so visibly in what we call the population phenotype the way people look it doesn't mean the genes disappear it doesn't mean these people are going to die out mysteriously it just means the gene is diluted into amelia which masks its its manifestation but it, it could still be or will still be there underneath in the gene pool well, that's a shame because prince harry is hot and spicy Okay, um, Zuki asks, good morning, Rufilwe. Please ask the naked scientist why crying makes one's voice shake. What effect does crying have on the vocal cords and why? Well, the reason that we cry is because humans are a social species. We're very visual species and we look at each other and we learn a lot about each other by what we see and by what we hear. And that helps us to respond to, engage with, protect, nurture and aid each other, which for a social species is how we become so successful. So part of the manifestation that makes you cry is that your nervous system is making all of these other things happen, such as your facial colour changes, you also produce tears, and you tend to change your muscle tone, it changes the way you breathe, and all of these things, because breathing is intrinsic to the way that you speak, all these things are going to affect your voice as well, because the muscle tone in your vocal cords is changing. Okay, and so and so, the, okay, and hence the voice shaking. Um, and then Sid asks, why are we still unable to predict the weather accurately? Thank you, Sid. There are weather futures that I'd like to buy <laughs> when you get this answer. <laughs> I dispute that we're not able to predict the weather accurately, Sid. In some places, okay. it's extremely good. And for example, we were talking on the program last week, and forgive me because you missed it, but maybe you've caught up on, on the internet, I don't know if away, but we were talking about an experiment we've got going down this weekend. We're going to send a balloon to the edge of space, and we're going to play screams from listeners 
in a computer that we've put onto that balloon so we can test the claim that in space no one can hear you scream. So our balloon will get to nearly the edge of space and and it's going to be you know heading all the way up there. And um, the point is that it's going to have to come all the way down again afterwards and we need to know where because we've got to go and get it and we don't want it landing also in a heavily populated area. So we've been watching the weather forecast over the last week and the predictions are staggeringly accurate day after day after day. And the reason for this is that in some parts of the world, and the UK is lucky enough to be one of them, the resolution of prediction is nearly down at the level of a square kilometre. As in, the way that they're predicting weather is that they have a computer which covers the size of a football field, supercomputer, which is taking measurements from all over the place and integrating those measurements and looking at how the weather is changing all around the world, integrating all that information, and it runs a model. It's got a a computer program that pretends it's the UK, and it can make very, very detailed predictions uh, down on on those bits of the Earth's surface. So we can predict the weather really rather accurately when it matters and where it matters, and if you're willing to invest in the technology know-how and the people to do it. In other parts of the world where we don't have as much data to put into our powerful computers you're not going to be as lucky. So in some areas, you won't get as good a weather forecast because there just isn't the raw data to make those predictions yet. Very similar to what you were talking about, the big data in medical, in medicine. Yeah, quite. Karen, good morning. What's your question in Tamboerskloof? Hi, good morning. So I like to, I'm a convenience shopper. I buy food at Woolworths, pop it in the microwave, and I've always felt that it's quite healthy because I'm just using steam to cook veg um, and so on. But then I recently read that microwave, the microwave actually breaks down the nutrients in the food, firstly, and then secondly, that the plastic that you are, container that you're using, um, releases, you know, whatever bad stuff and that goes into the food and that we're actually harming ourselves and our children through that. And now I'm in such a conundrum. What do I do? Do I continue doing that? Um, You know, yeah. So I wanted to know, what should I do? Well, you you will be in a much healthier state through eating the vegetables than you would be were you not eating the vegetables. So however you choose to cook them, you're still better off than someone who is electing not to eat any vegetables or the right amounts of fruit and vegetables. That's the first point. Second point is, why does microwaving both help and hinder? The reason for this is the way a microwave oven works is that it produces microwaves at about 2.5 gigahertz. That's 2.5 billion waves every second. And that frequency is important. It's chosen because when the waves interact with the foodstuff, they make the water molecules in the foodstuff vibrate and shake. And that's where the heating comes from. It's a bit like you rubbing your hands together 2.5 billion times a second. That vibration is what imparts energy to the food. But because the microwave is a wave and it produces hot spots and cold spots, which is where the waves are at a peak or a trough, then some bits of the food may experience much greater heating or not enough heating. And that's why you have a turntable. But if you put the food perfectly in the middle of the turntable, then some bits of the food are going to go around in the wave and experience different bits of the wave. But some bits of the food, especially in old-fashioned microwaves that don't rotate the standing wave, you'll end up with... um, hot spots and cold spots which will obliterate the vitamins and nutrients in the food because you get superheating in those areas. If you use a microwave diligently and with more modern generations of microwaves which actually do rotate or, or change the pattern of the waves which are being produced to heat the food, this should be a much reduced chance. 
In terms of plastic going into the microwave, I would be very cautious about that. And I think you're right to be worried about that because many of these plastics, there's many that are now proven to be microwave safe, but there are many that aren't. And it's very easy to confuse them. And what can happen is if you make some of these plastic stuffs hot, they can release chemicals from the plastic, which are called plasticizers. These are additional chemicals that are added to the plastic alongside the thing that makes the plastic, and they're there to give it its characteristics. If you think about, say, a, a water bottle, it's, it's got this lovely, luxuriant, squeezable feel to it, and it bends and flexes in a gentle, easy-to-manipulate way. But if you leave it for a number of years and come back, or you use it every day as a drinking water bottle, and then you find it's gone all brittle, And the reason it's gone all brittle is because these molecules that are added to give it those beautiful bendable characteristics, the plasticizers, have all come out and gone into the water and you've drunk them. So (laughs) the same thing can happen, but in an accelerated rate, because with higher temperature it goes faster, the same thing can happen with microwaving plastic. So I would make sure that your plastics are microwave safe and that that they're not going to impart these plasticizers to your food. I would definitely keep eating the fruit and vegetables. And the benefit of microwaving fruits and vegetables is that you don't leach out all the goodies into the water. Because if you boil things, you lose the goodies into the water unless you use the water to make soup or gravy. So I would say the microwaving of vegetables is probably not bad. It's very convenient. It's very easy, especially if you're trying to feed your kids in a hurry if you're a working parent. Um, and it's much better to feed the vegetables than no vegetables, even if they've been microwaved. Brilliant. Karen, feeling safer or less safe? <laughs> well, now I'm going to have to get onto Woolworths to find out whether the microwavable bags are. Do it, girl. Good luck and let us know because I'm, I'm just like you. Thanks a lot, Karen, for calling in. We've got a voice note for you here, Chris. Just a sec. Hi, Rafael. Dr. Chris Smith, Ralph in Gordons Bay. Does a Achilles tendon strengthen the older you get? For example, is it weaker when you're a teenager? Does it get stronger as you become an adult, as you get older? I listen on the radio. Interesting question, that one, isn't it? Mm. Well, we've explained what these tendons are, the tendons and what they're made of, rather, that they're a big, thick, connective tissue bundle. And they insert into the sheath around the muscle. And in the case of the back of your leg, that's you've got two muscles there. You've, You've got your gastrocnemius muscle, which is when you stand on tiptoes, you see two big bulges just below your knee, on one on each side. Those are the heads of your gastrocnemius. And behind that's another muscle called the soleus muscle, which is used most of the time just to keep you standing up so that when you're standing for long periods of time, your soleus is doing all the work. And those two muscles bunch together into a sheath and that sheath then becomes the Achilles tendon and that tendon inserts into your heel bone, your calcaneus, and they insert specifically into the periosteum, which is the layer around the bone. And when it detaches, you can actually rupture the interface between the tendon and the bone, for example. You can just pull away. Or sometimes the tendon itself can just completely snap. All these things are possible in various ways in which you can do this with different types of trauma and accidents and and then just spontaneously. But as with any part of the human body, really, the more that you use it, the stronger it becomes. This goes for your brain as well. Actually, the more you coach yourself in doing something the better you become at doing that one thing the more exercise you do the stronger your muscles become and if your muscles become stronger there is a a secondary strengthening of the other things that those muscles work on which are the tendons and the bones they insert into and the attachments so the more exercise you do then the actually up to a point the stronger these things are going to be but if you overdo it or in some vulnerable people because there will always be exceptions you can end up with too much force being transmitted into the bone 
and you can actually cause this avulsion or this this injury. And th- this is actually quite common in people who are professional a- athletes, people who put enormous amounts of force through those joints. And because they've trained their muscles to become super strong, and they just get to the point where they're, they're exceeding what their body's capable of adapting to. So things do improve with age and increase with age up to a point, because as you get older, you do more, you weigh more, and you tend to be more active compared to when you're a baby, for example. But then there's a peak point, which is probably corresponding to your 30s. And then after that, you probably end up going downhill because we tend to become a bit slobbier, a bit lazier, a bit weaker, a bit less active. And especially in older people, they, they tend to get quite enfeebled as they are. I mean, it depends on how active they are, but as they get less and less active. So as a result, you have a use it or lose it thing going on. So if you don't use something, it will weaken as well. And so I think there's probably a peak and there's an optimum amount of exercise. And beyond that, you don't get any more gains and you're putting yourself at higher risk. Gotcha. So over time, it's actually a bit degenerative as well. Um, We've got a question here. Why do our eyelids sometimes twitch uncontrollably and often? Mm, It's irritating that. And this is quite common. And lots of people get this and then they think, oh, my goodness, am I developing some kind of neurological degenerative disease? The answer is that your eyelids have lots of tiny muscles in them. Those tiny muscles are organized into groups of muscles, a motor unit. And that group of muscles, the motor unit, is supplied by an individual motor nerve cell, a motor neuron. And for some reason, spontaneously, known best to that motor neuron, it goes into patterns of spontaneous discharge from from time to time and it recruits that squad of muscle fibres and causes them to contract. And it doesn't just fire once, it fires off in a barrage and then whatever systems are in place in the nervous system to rein in inappropriate muscle movements then turn off the motor neuron again. And this tends to happen more when we're tired, it tends to happen more when we're stressed and it also tends to happen more when we've had a lot of things like coffee. So if, it, if it's happening to you a lot, then you could look at those three factors and ask, are there any things that I can reduce or improve on? Get more sleep, get less stressed, perhaps go easy on the really strong coffee, because those things are all potentiating the excitability of your nervous system. And it's manifest visibly in eyelids and, and other muscles can occasionally do this as well. And people often go to their doctor saying, I'm terribly worried. I think I've got some degenerative disease coming because my muscles are twitching. Some degenerative diseases do present like that, but mostly in older people in a sustained reproducible way, not just a one-off effect on your eye that then comes and goes. And if you've got that happening, there's nothing wrong with you. Be reassured. Don't get stressed about that, making the problem worse. It will go away if you cut down the coffee, get a bit more sleep and uh, get a bit less stress in your life. Go and watch a nice movie. Fantastic. <laughs> okay, so speaking of stress, I've got a, another WhatsApp saying, hey, Raf, Bansu here. Burnout, what is it and how can you avoid it? Well, I think that burnout is a subjective term, which means different things to different people. But what we generally agree on when we're defining burnout is that someone who has burned out becomes physically and mentally exhausted. And this can be a consequence, uh, rather like me, most of the time. But um, the reason this tends to happen is people end up losing their sense of control. It's another definition, I think, of burnout is, is severe stress. And when do people feel stressed? They feel stressed when they feel that they don't have control over the outcome of a situation. People can tolerate enormous amounts of stress and demand and they can work very, very hard, especially if they know that they can actually press the big red off button at any point. They're controlling the game. They're, they're in command of what's, what's going to be their destiny. As soon as that becomes someone else's choice and you're 
someone else's whipping post and they they call the tune and you have to dance it becomes a lot more stressful and people can only do that for so long before they start to suffer debilitating feelings of mental exhaustion and physical exhaustion and often it's very high performing people who tend to burn the candle at both ends to achieve a goal no matter what will often be the ones that present to their doctor with the symptoms of burnout it's not something that i could give a test and say oh yes the diagnosis is burnout it's a subjective measure based on on a on a, on a history from that person of a sustained pattern of activity loss of control stress and other symptoms like poor sleep feeling low in mood withdrawing from society you don't do things you normally enjoy doing all the things that you would have previously just jumped at the chance to do you think do you know what i can't be bothered and if you're if you're in that sort of situation then you may be bordering on or have developed a sort of burnout state but luckily it can be reversed it can um colleen wants to know whether it's normal to feel clear-headed on some days and slow on others (laughs) Do you know what? I didn't feel very clear-headed before this programme. And do you know the reason for that was at four o'clock this morning, my smoke alarm went off. And it decided to just go off for no reason. And of course, you leap out of bed thinking, oh, my goodness, what's going on? I, I suspect the battery was flat or you know, it's been hot. So the windows have all been open. Someone probably lit a bonfire and some smoke came in the window or something. And it triggered it. And it totally disturbs your sleep pattern. And we only woke up when uh, the person who's taking our kids to school pressed the doorbell and said, oh, we've been sitting outside. We're wondering when the kids are going to come out. And there we are, uh, just literally falling out of bed. And then I looked at the clock and I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm supposed to be talking to Rafilwe in about 10 minutes. (laughs) And I had to have a very strong cup of coffee to re-engage my neurological circuits and get myself back in the groove. So (laughs) I think that's the reason it's it's the sleep pattern. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Shane wants to know, hi, please ask about lymph nodes. How necessary are they? And can one return to 100% health after the removal of a sentinel node? Lymph nodes are what are dubbed in common parlance your lymph glands. And when people say my glands are up, I've got an infection. Those are your lymph nodes becoming enlarged. You have lymph nodes all over your bodies. And they are all connected by a chain of conduits or vessels called lymphatics. And they are absolutely essential, but you can get by if you lose one or two of them. And the way they work is that they drain different dependent tissues. So if you have some mischief going on in one of those tissues, the products of that mischief are carted off on cells called dendritic cells to the lymph node. And so, for instance, if I have a bacterial infection in a patch of skin, then the bacteria will die and shed proteins and other bits of bacterial garbage which are drained into these lymphatics and grabbed by these dendritic cells and in a lymph node the dendritic cells are specialized cells which have long frondy arms they present these things that they've found in the periphery to all the other elements of the immune system there are white blood cells called b cells and t cells sitting there that inspect what the dendritic cells have got on offer and the idea is that you get the dendritic cells showing a T cell and a B cell, which want to respond to that particular thing, the right thing in the right context, and that's what kickstarts your immune response. And that's why the glands then swell up, because you start to grow lots of those white blood cells that specifically know how to fight that particular infection. So these lymph nodes are really important as your early warning, first sign or first point of contact slash response, early response system to any kind of infection. 
Fascinating. Thank you so much, Dr. Chris Smith. Always love to hear from you. In fact, we got a WhatsApp saying, oh my word, I love the Naked Scientist. Thank you for joining us and we can't wait to chat to you again next Friday. Oh, likewise. And welcome back again. Lovely to see you again. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.